0: Well, welcome everybody to uh, today's uh, seminar. We have uh, the privilege of having with us today, Jesse Crane, uh, who's coming as a uh, postdoctoral fellow from the Bremen International Graduate School of Social Science in Bremen, Germany, uh, where he started last year. He uh, recently got his uh, PhD in international relations from American University, where his uh, dissertation was entitled, Making War." Embodied Interactions, meaning making and the War in Iraq. And uh, on his, his uh, chair was um, Patrick Thaddeus Jackson, who many of us know. And uh, his external member of his committee was uh, Bud Duval, who many of us know, University of Minnesota. Um, beyond working on publications out of his dissertation, Jesse has a, forth- has a recent publication in the Journal of Men's Studies, called Contesting Essentialist Theories of Patriarchal Relations. What I find most interesting in in Jesse's work is he's one of those rare people who works at the intersection of international relations theory, gender studies, sexuality, and international security. And uh, today he's going to talk to us about multiple masculinities in U.S. military culture, a project that has relied on a great deal of ethnographic field work at American military bases. So uh, thank you very, very much for coming, Jesse.
1: Thank you, Ted. Uh, And thank you all for inviting me. Thank you for being here today. Um, What I'm going to be talking about today is the plurality and contradictions of masculine military identities in contemporary U.S. armed forces. Um, For those of you who may not be as familiar with the work in gender studies and men's studies, Um, it's important to separate the idea of masculinity and femininity from biological sex, right? We have bodies. Bodies have genes. This is not contested. But in social interaction, our identities as masculine or feminine are not uh, products of our biology, right? They're emergent from our interactions with each other. And this has been fairly clearly established by cross-cultural anthropology, by developmental psychology, um, and by a, a growing work in gender studies and men studies that my work is very much emergent from. So, for my purposes, uh, masculinity is this uh, consists of the socially ascribed norms and expectations associated with men. Um, again, this is this is relational, meaning that that masculinities are not things we get to just have. Rather, they're things we have to do on an ongoing basis. Um, traditionally, uh, masculinity has been defined in terms of feminine others, right? and there's a great deal of feminist scholarship on how this works. Um, my own work uh, builds from the sociological tradition of ethnomethodology, where West and Zimmerman have a, a marvelous study called Doing Gender, uh, and a follow-up piece called Doing Difference. And the idea is that, that even in this room right now, you may read me as male, but you may read me as more or less male. Right? In that sense, my bio- biology does not determine the way you see me, the way we may interact. Masculinities are always uh, defined in hierarchy with each other. And as I'll explain a little bit later when I get to the empirical sort of content of my work, uh, this is absolutely true in the U.S. military. A good anecdotal uh, example of this is that the, one of the main leading theorists of masculinity, a man named Michael Kimmel, has a thought experiment. And he says, imagine, for those of you who don't believe that you know, gender is something that's emergent or that's interactive, but imagine any playground anywhere in America where a large group of six-year-olds are happily playing. Kimmel bets that he could start a fight on any playground, anywhere in America, with one simple question. Who's the sissy around here? What would happen, right? Either a bunch of the boys would point to one of the others and say, he is, right? And then that boy has two choices. Either he runs home crying, thus confirming everyone's suspicion that he is, in fact, the sissy, or he has to stand and fight thereby denying the terms. He has, to, he has to engage in exactly the kind of uh, lashing out that is used to establish uh, masculinity. As Kimmel writes in, in a, a wonderful piece called it's something like Shame, Fear, and Homophobia, um, he writes, Being seen as unmanly is a fear that propels men to deny manhood to others as a way of proving the unprovable, that one is fully manly. And I'm just sort of laying this out at the beginning so that as I move through my talk, we have a a basic common vocabulary about what I mean when I'm talking about masculinity and the way it's performed. Given that, that gender, as opposed to sex, is something that has to be constantly articulated, constantly proved and reproved, there are a variety of ways of doing gender, of performing any given activity in the correctly gendered way. Weston Zimmerman's work in sociology draws heavily on the ethnomethodological concept of accountability, meaning that in everyday interaction with one another, we are accountable to each other for the statements we make. In academia, this is particularly true, right? Our statements are accountable to a set of literatures, to empirical data, to uh, a, a history and uh, habit of citation. Uh, but this is also true in everyday life. Our statements about the world are accountable to other people's observations. If I say it's lovely here in Columbus, I'm accountable for you looking out the window and perhaps disagreeing with me. This is also true of gender. The ways that we do any given task can be we can be called to account for doing that in the correctly gendered way. And of course, this isn't unique to gender. It's also true of race, it's also true of class, right? The particular identities we have give others expectations of how we should be acting. All of this sort of n- work on gendered theory, particularly the relational or everyday study of it, is posed against essentialism, it? right? It's posed against the idea of a biologically determinative style of being. Um, I turn to an unlikely ally in my battle against essentialism, which is Waltz 59, where he writes... Man's nature is sometimes that he fights and sometimes that he does not. I can't find a more parsimonious and simple way of refuting the essentialism that, at this point, is rare. It does crop up, particularly in evolutionary psychology, where it is argued on occasion that such undesirable social behaviors as rape and murder are biologically determined in men's evolution. Um, there is, however, more than just an analytical or intellectual problem with essentializing. And that's what uh, the philosopher Ian Hacking calls a looping effect. And a looping effect happens when a group of people are labeled or described in a particular way. Perhaps by experts, perhaps by census takers, perhaps by authority figures. And then they internalize that particular expectation or that particular set of labels. Um, a particularly awful example, and I apologize for those of you who are eating, but I'm going to have to just keep going anyway. Um, particularly nasty example of this is, is that McCaffey in her recent work uh, called The Caveman Mystique, in which she argues that contemporary American culture has been permeated with this sort of evolutionary psychological narrative in which we are all, we being men, deep down cavemen. Right? We really, in the end, just want to rape, conquer, and pillage. Her example is that there was a, a, a gang rape that occurred in New York Central Park in the early, I think it was in, in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, and it was caught on video by a surveillance camera. One of the attackers said to his victim, Welcome back to the caveman times. To me, this is exactly an example of what hacking calls a looping effect, Right? Certain experts say we're all cavemen. Then men use that discourse to legitimate their behavior. I, on the other hand, draw on the work, as I mentioned, of, of the micro-sociological work in ethnomethodology, symbolic interactionism, and particularly of the philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who talks about meaning in use. So rather than labeling a group of people uh, and saying that they have some particular essential characteristic, the focus of all of this work, Wittgenstein and the microsociologists, is how is it that meaning actually happens? How is it that we do it? My words may have meanings if you look them up in a dictionary, but even right now, you're engaged in interpretive action, and I'm orienting my speech towards, hopefully, my, ex- my hopefully correct expectations uh, of what you'll understand. So these approaches traditionally have been used uh, to analyze participant-observer data. Um, so methodology and symbolic interactionism both have intellectual roots in the Chicago School of Sociology, which was very much based on participant uh, observation. Um, in the discussion I'll be giving today, uh, I'm actually drawing on both participant observation and secondary sources. So there is a, a tension there. Because the whole emphasis on meaning in use is you need to watch people use it, right? Which becomes problematic when I, when you do what I do, which is rely on proxies, rely on, on others to supply us with information. Um, I've been engaging in a project of participant observation with U.S. soldiers uh, since 2003. Um, I originally intended to study. Uh, Dehumanization processes, as have been outlined in the political psychology literature, and given the particular kind of person I am, I suppose, rather than seeing that, what I saw was gender. Because every soldier I talked to, well, almost every soldier I talked to, called me a sissy, or worse. So while I went there hoping. To get a certain set of data, what I got was something else. What I got was the positioning of masculinity vis a vis me, right? And we are, there's an established, you know, the military sociological literature has a, a pretty significant body uh, of work on the way that the mi- military sees civilians, right? And the, the tensions that are built into that. Uh, in my own work, that was absolutely put in my face. So I changed my research project and have been working ever since on gender. Um, I don't want to spend too much more time on methodology, but I would also highlight, uh, for those who might be interested in pursuing a sort of meaning-in-use look at the everyday, another incredibly useful resource is the work of Bruno Latour and others in uh, science and technology studies. For those of you who aren't familiar with their work, what they did is basically studied laboratory scientists uh, using ethnography. So in contra- in contradiction to um, some scientific realist or or sort of positivist claims that nature is somehow self evident and gives of its gives meaning about itself, the work of Latour and so, uh, science and technology studies has actually focused on the very social, uh, unpredictable and contradictory practices of scientists and technicians, and the ways that they produce truth, facts, and that facts are. Outcomes of very complex assemblages. It's not that the world simply presents itself. It's rather you have to create a very specific context for the world to tell you something about itself. In particle physics, you have to, be, you know, the the CERN. You have to build a multi-billion-dollar, huge, massive collider in order to get a couple of bands on an X-ray finder, right? Um, So Bruno Latour and others have developed something that they call actor network theory, which looks at the arrangement of technologies, devices, and people, and how meaning emerges in those networks. I would argue that actor network theory is incredibly useful for understanding the everyday activity of combat units. If you talk to soldiers, as I have, and I think probably some other people in the room have, it's clear that their weapons, their equipment, their communications are actors. It's not just that soldiers are are sort of these wonderful Cartesian subjects engaged in premeditated thought. No, no, their training, their weapons, their equipment, very much determine their experience of a particular interaction while in combat. I would also highlight, um, a little on the weird side, but very, very inspiring for those of us interested in the interface of people, technologies, and equipment, the work of Donna Haraway, who wrote um, a lovely piece called The Cyborg Manifesto, in which she argues that technologies are both extensions of the self, but they also penetrate the self. The technologies we use change who we are. Anyone who knows a Mac person, I think, can identify with that, right? It's not just an extension of you into the world, an instrument for you to achieve goals, but it also rearranges your conception of yourself. I would argue, uh, and I don't think many of my soldier uh, friends and uh, interview subjects would disagree, that, that when they are in combat, they are not simply people or not simply human animals. They're an assemblage. They have weapons, equipment, communications gear, GPS finders, right? and that that assemblage is more than just a person with stuff. It alters who they are in the world. So all of that out of the way. Um, in, in all of these approaches, whether it's Wittgensteinian study of, sort of everyday language use, or the microsociology, or the science and technology studies, in all of them, there's a common assumption, which is that human social identities are achieved through interaction. It's not that there is a self that comes first. It's rather that we make ourselves available to others through the ways we interact. That's absolutely um, crucial to the kind of work I do. So, masculinities. Men's studies, which is an emerging field, um, and for those of us interested in getting jobs, it's useful to note the sociology of academia is shifting as more and more universities are going from women's studies departments to gender studies departments. There's a sort of, I would, I would argue, belated realization that men, in fact, have gender too. In Masculinity Studies, there's a a concept developed by the the preeminent thinker, um, R.W. Connell, the concept of hegemonic masculinity, which is defined as the constellation of gender practice in a given context most aligned to the perpetuation of women's domination. This idea of hegemonic masculinity has been picked up in feminist IR. It's been applied by a number of scholars who are interested in military cultures, but I would argue it's often been imported without the sophistication of Connell's definition. Remember, it's a constellation of gendered practice in a given context. So uh, I would argue that, that for too long, the study of masculinity in military institutions has presumed a hegemonic, homogenous, and single definition of masculinity. And it's against that that I'll be arguing today. Instead, I want to argue that masculinities, plural, are made meaningful in situations of controversy. They're, or at least they become visible. This is also a useful analytical thing, or a methodological point, right? Everyday lives are often difficult to find. That which we assume we don't articulate. But in moments of controversy, in, in moments in which questions arise, things become visible that wouldn't normally otherwise So this is visible in several different instances that I've been looking at in my recent work in which there's been a debate. As we all know, the Obama administration has engaged in a lengthy review process uh, regarding U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And while a lot of media coverage has focused on just you know, the troop number debate, um, there's been a, a deeper soul-searching. And you can see this in the pages of parameters, in the, pa- you know, in the work of, of scholars at military institutions. There, there are a lot of people asking a lot of questions about how things went so wrong in Iraq. Why is it that the U.S. military has such a preference for what one scholar called highly kinetic operations, right? Fallujah-style operations? On one hand, American power is very much based on our ability to deploy massive force, massive overwhelming force, in a given theater. Nonetheless, as we've learned, the types of liberal interventions, or at least supposedly liberal interventions, that the U.S. is engaged in today require more than simply killing enemies. Especially when you're there to liberate a people, the more enemies you kill might actually be counterproductive for your, your goals. <laughs> There's also been a a number of critiques that have emerged in the media, uh, particularly by British, Canadian, and Australian partners who fought alongside U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan who have complained about an over-reliance on heavy weapons, right? a tendency to call in airstrikes, perhaps when not necessary, or maybe necessary, but nonetheless airstrikes that have had significant civilian casualties with detrimental effects on our long-term goals. Recent media reports uh, from both Haiti and Iraq have soldiers and Marines complaining that the type of reconstruction and disaster relief work they're doing are illegitimate uses of their training. As they say, this is not what I was trained for. There have been reports of soldiers stationed in Iraq wishing they were in Afghanistan, where the real fight is. As one said, there it's less about reconstruction and negotiation. It's ironic, right? Given that McChrystal's entire strategy is to do exactly that kind of thing in Afghanistan, to build local capacities, to find militias we can peel off from the Taliban. But there's a logic that's expressed by the soldiers who complain that their talents are being wasted, that their equipment and training are not suited to the sort of reconstruction work they're engaged in. The speed drills that are absolutely essential to contemporary American military training are very much based on a rapid reaction. Um, Having not served in the military myself, although I have two sisters who did, um, the only parallel I can draw is to my own martial arts training. The goal when you study Kung Fu is not to make a choice when someone throws a punch. It's to block it, counter it, and hit them. This is very much the model of contemporary U.S. training, which has been very much influenced by behavioral psychology. I would argue that the preference, particularly in the 1990s, uh, by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and uh, certainly both conservative Democrats and Republicans, to avoid a major reorientation of U.S. training and equipment has... I would argue uh, it's perpetuated a, a certain image of warfare, right? as highly kinetic, as conventional, as engaging and destroying the enemy as quickly as possible. Um, I would argue that a, a chance was lost in the 1990s to reorient American equipment, American training, and American tactics to the types of conflicts that I think many of us saw coming, certainly that we're engaged in today that this was compounded by Rumsfeld's preference for a very small footprint, right? A very light number of ground forces backed up by heavy air power, I think has, has only uh, compounded the problem. When we have soldiers trained in speed drills to fire as quickly as possible, when we have a doctrine in which suppressing fire is the standard response to an ambush, what we've ended up with is forces who use overwhelming force wherever they are, whenever they are. The entire doctrine of counterinsurgency, however, says that the goal is not just to respond and defeat a particular enemy at a particular time. It's instead to change the political, economic, and social dynamics of a given conflict. So in in two particular instances, I think we can see... um, the ways that masculinity are bound to these. Um, One thing I think uh, a lot of us um, have noticed, and certainly um, Peter Singer has written a lot about, is the growing use of UAVs, right? Unmanned aerial vehicles in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, now Yemen. I I recently read we're also using them off the coast of Somalia as part of anti-piracy. Yet the Air Force cannot recruit enough pilots they're having to divert pilots from other programs, often against their will. Uh, one set of interviews in the Stars and Stripes uh, at the Air Force Academy had uh, a number of young cadets talking about how their careers were over because they'd been assigned to UAVs. That's ironic because that's the fastest-growing segment of the Air Force. We're constantly adding new UAVs. It's the most demanded form of tactical air support. And in the current operation in Marja, it's, it's also the, the primary uh, form of air support that's being brought in. So the irony is we have a branch of the Air Force that is in incredibly high demand, that's expanding rapidly, and that's seeing constant action. Right? They're killing a lot of people. But in the hierarchy of masculinity, they're seen as sissies. I'll, I'll try and use polite language. Um one In this, this lovely article in uh, Stars and Stripes, there were uh, several pilots who'd been pulled off of C-17 cargo aircraft, which traditionally were not seen as the most butch, masculine part of the Air Force, right? Nonetheless, they complained at having been assigned to UAVs. They wanted a real plane. In... Uh, An article, uh, again, in Stars and Stripes, it was this fall, uh, there were a series of articles from Creech Air Force Base, which is in Nevada, which is where uh, UAVs operated by the Air Force are piloted from. Um, We all know that the CIA is operating UAVs uh, over Pakistan, and I think we also kind of know that most of their operators are operating, they're they're flying the vehicles from in theater. The Army does the same thing, right? They, They also use UAVs. And the, the pilots who fly these vehicles are also stationed wherever, you know, at the airbase where the UAVs are based. This is not true of the Air Force, however, who have been using satellite uplinks um, to fly these planes from Creech in Nevada. In the article, the the pilots talked about the psychological strain of doing twelve hours of shift in which they're watching U.S. patrols in Afghanistan. They sometimes watch an IED kill you know, brothers and sisters in the service. And yet, they get in their cars, drive 20 minutes, and go home to their families every night. Um, again, Peter Singer, um, the go-to guy for UAVs, um, said you know, this is a new type of warfare, and we don't know if human beings can take this kind of strain. What I find interesting about this article is that it generated the most number of letters to the editor in the Stars and Stripes in the seven years I've been reading it, collecting, cataloging. Um, For over six weeks, people wrote in about these articles. And there was a wide range of responses. On one hand, there was a combat nurse um, who was in Baghdad who talked very sympathetically about the strains of having to watch people die and not being able to do anything about it. And at the opposite spectrum, there was an army captain who referred to these pilots as prancing unicorns. Now, if that's not a masculinity move, I ain't never seen one. So there was a range of responses to these articles. One of the things I found interesting is that a large number of them express simultaneous jealousy and condemnation of these pilots. They're sissies because they're not in real harm's way like us, but God, I'm jealous, I wish I could see my kids every night. So there's a certain tension. I would argue this tension emerges because masculinity in the contemporary military can be expressed according to a variety of discourses. It can be expressed through proximity to danger. Um, certainly if if you've ever spent time with um, soldiers who've recently been through boot, there's a lot of bragging about who had it worst, right? There's a, a certain hierarchy that emerges from those who had the toughest drill sergeants down to those who got off pretty easy. In that sense, masculinity, manhood, is directly correlated with suffering or with danger. Units will brag. Uh, when I was doing my field work in Germany, I, I was interviewing uh, combat forces who had just returned from a uh, 16 month deployment in Iraq. Actually, my field work was disrupted because Bush's surge kept them an extra three months, so I didn't get quite as much time with them as originally intended. So they'd just gotten back, and in the bars and pool halls in which I had access to them and interviewed them, there was constant bragging about whose unit had taken the most casualties. At the same time, that bragging, as I think any human being can relate to, was a way of of articulating but also hiding the incredible loss, the sadness, of having watched friends die. Nonetheless, that sadness can't be articulated because it's just a sign of weakness. But when you translate that sadness into a bragging about suffering, we had it worse. We took the most casualties. He died in my arms. It's a way of asserting masculinity, I will argue. I, I, I do argue. On the other hand, masculinity can also be asserted in terms of proximity to killing. In the articles responding to the Creech Air Force Base story, uh, pilots who fly high over the theater argued that they they were you know they aren't like these UAV pilots because they actually do it themselves there were other responses as well there were those who are um, perhaps impolitely called fobits forward operating base right those those who stay on the base and don't go beyond the wire or pogs persons other than grunts um And some of them expressed condemnation also of the UAV pilots because what they said is, we take mortar fire, we take rocket fire, we put our bodies on the line, not like these sissies who sit in their control room flying from laptops, right? So what I want to highlight in, in this particular instance is that there are a number of ways of associating oneself with masculinity and denigrating that of others, right? You can say, well, you're just a pog, I actually kill people, if you're a pilot of a UAV. But a POG can say right back to you, yes, but you don't put your body on the line. In this sense, I want to argue that masculinity is not a single concept. It's rather a resource. It's a way of making a move. And it's often made in a way that denigrates others. The classical feminist literature on IR has often focused on the dichotomy between masculinity and femininity. But this operates within genders as well, right? Men who can be perceived as less masculine are feminine, but the same can be true of women. In this entire discussion, I I, I wish I'd said earlier, this does also apply to women. Masculine norms are internalized by female soldiers in ways that have been demonstrated all over the literature, although I'd particularly recommend the work of Saskia Sassen-Levy, an Israeli scholar, who's done some really brilliant stuff on this exact issue. The irony of these debates, I would argue, is that in the hierarchy of sort of who is the most badass, you know, to go back to Kimmel's example, you could start a fight anywhere in America by asking who's the sissy. I would argue that I I could start a pretty good argument in, in just about any military bar by asking who's the baddest. The answer is usually special forces. When someone wearing a green beret or even someone with a combat patch walks into a room, everyone notices. Yet it's ironic in that it's special forces seen as the most badass, seen as the most kinetic, seen as the hardest killing machines by the soldiers who complain about the work they're doing in Iraq, in Haiti, in Afghanistan, in terms of reconstruction. It's exactly those special forces who speak Pashto who have master's degrees, who are doing reconstruction work, who are negotiating at the local and village level to try and find allies. I want to just conclude with an anecdote about why all of this might matter. A good friend of mine... um, did two tours, well, one-and-a-half tours in Iraq. His legs were blown off by an IED. Um, but he told the story during his first deployment in which his unit was instructed to go pick up a local sheikh and bring him in. Assuming he was hostile, they broke down his door in the middle of the night with explosive bolts, bagged him, arrested all the mams, military-age males, in the compound, seized all the weapons, smashed up the place pretty good, and brought him in. Unfortunately, he was supposed to come in for a meeting with the colonel about a local reconstruction project. He was not a hostile. He was not an insurgent. Whether he remained, I don't know. But I would argue that that while that's a single anecdote, it's nonetheless indicative of the importance of interpretive work, of everyday meaning-making. That the top-down hierarchical structure of the state and the modern military, um, often described in IR literature as an instrument, right? Militaries are instruments of national power. Um, and often they're discussed as if they're plastic, as if they can be used to do anything. Rebuild an earthquake, help secure New Orleans, invade a country, rebuild a country, right? I would argue that that conceptualization of the military does a disservice to the importance of everyday meaning-making for the soldiers themselves. While they can be given any set of order, they are soldiers after all, and they'll go where they're told to go, the way that they do it, the enthusiasm with which they do it, I think very much depends on their self-image, of what is an appropriate mission, what's a sissy mission, um, in uh, an article in the New York Times I think it was about two weeks ago about the build-up for the assault on Marja Marines were complaining to the New York Times reporter that the new orders from McChrystal were tying their hands and one of them used an explicit homophobic put-down um, which I won't say here uh, to talk about politicians right? it's the politicians bunch of sissies not real men who are tying our hands. They won't let us fight the way we want to fight. While McChrystal's orders restricting the use of large airstrikes and minimizing the use of heavy weapons, certainly their orders. They probably will be followed. Nonetheless, the logic of that order doesn't interface well with a, conceptual, a conceptualization or a self-image of masculinity directly tied to heavy combat. That particular, you know, th- this image that you know it's not a real mission. Reconstruction is just for sissies. That is, however, only one articulation of masculinity. There could be many others. I have a good friend who's a military intelligence officer who's deploying to Baghdad this summer. I would argue that he, like many others in the officer corps, like many others in information systems in intelligence, um, has a very different self-image than that of. You know, the 19-year-old who just wants to get some. Their image of masculinity is tied to professionalism, to efficiency, to bringing back all of their men. Then there are other conceptualizations. There's the nurse who wrote in with an incredibly empathetic comment for these Creech Air Force Base guys, emphasizing, and, and the nurse was saying, that he and his unit had debriefs every night to try and process what they'd been through, and that they'd set up a special support group before they went back to civilian medical work to try and deal with the effects of PTSD. There are a variety of ways to be a man. There are a variety of ways of being a man in the military right now. And that's my point. Thank you very much. I'd love it if you did, because you probably know names, but...
2: Oh, I very much enjoyed your, uh, your presentation, Um I'm thinking through what the military take away from what you're arguing, and it's part of the idea that there's, when we think about the opportunities that might have been missed in the 1990s, is that because the military itself didn't try to work with new or more varied? Grassroots, you can't. After someone's decided for him or herself what masculinity would be, that you can't really, you can't just impose it
1: from the top. So. Yeah, um, I think. Yeah, what I'm what I'm arguing is not so much that the the military <clears throat> didn't engage in a sort of cultural rebuilding of its soldiers correctly, but rather that that the the dominant image of the military you know certainly that's present in popular culture and war films fed into a strategic outlook that emphasized heavy high technology weapons right that 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 while the the average the average soldier entering the service has a certain image before they get there of what the mili- of what military life is of what it means to be a real soldier that that image is, is very much, it circulates in popular culture, it's certainly produced in advertising for, for you know army commercials and things like that. But that, that cultural expectation or, or self image, that image of the soldier, it fed into um, an emphasis on heavy conventional warfare. And what I, what I meant by the opportunity that I think was squandered in the 90s is that even though U.S. forces deployed to Bosnia, to Kosovo, to Haiti, um, and on a variety of other missions, the top brass continued to see those missions as improper, as as not really a good use of what they're doing, and continued to spend most of their budget, certainly in their training procedures, emphasized rapid conventional warfare. And so I guess that's what I mean, in that when we have a dominant cultural narrative in the United States about what it means to be a soldier, and when that meets or meshes well with our procurement and training procedures, what we miss, I think, is the the complexity of modern warfare. And uh, I don't think that it's totally determinative, and I, I don't, um, meaning it, uh, U.S., popular cultural imaginary of the military. I, I don't think that that can't be overcome. but when a soldier comes in expecting to do fighting to be badass, and all of their training is based on speed reflex drills, you know highly kinetic operations. and when their brass themselves resists resist uh, you know efforts to use military forces for operations other than high intensity conflict. What, what we get is a situation where the culture, the doctrine, and the procurement all line up pretty well. And I think that that's what I mean was missed. Had we used the relative peace and in, intense prosperity of the 1990s to emphasize language training, to focus on operations other than high-intensity conflict, to divert some of our spending from... You know, ABMs and, and the latest uh, long-range missiles, which in the end, you know, they were great for the first week of shock and awe. And they haven't helped much since. It's only now that we're developing MRAPs. It's only now that we're developing UAVs. It's only now that we have Pashto courses. It's only now that we're teaching Arabic. And I, I guess that's what I mean. I, I don't know how clear I am, Absolutely, and I, I think the, the military sociology literature on drill sergeants and basic training speaks really well to that, right? The, the, the ways that, that unit cohesion are produced, often through an incredible amount of homophobia, right? um, that, that that culture need not be. It is, but it need not be.
3: created um of uh the the gay male soldier um that's also out there that's often associated with of the translator,
2: right? The Arabic translator that's being you know right. expelled from the military in, in our time of need or
1: something. So could you talk about it Yeah, absolutely. And um this is certainly a debate that's that's going on or a discussion that's going on absolutely right now. Um I have a friend who teaches at NDU and it's absolutely what ev- it's coming. We all know it's coming. Um, there are certainly forces resisting it. Nonetheless, it will come. Um, I guess from my perspective, uh, and certainly from the, the, the literature in men's studies, homophobia often has less to do with who you sleep with than how you perform your gender. Right? It, in my own experience, I, I've been consistently taken for a queer and a sissy, regardless of the fact that I'm married right, to a woman. But that doesn't matter. Because it's not about who I share a bed with. It's about how I perform, how I dress, right? And since I've been living in Europe, my pants have been getting tighter and my own little brother is insistent that it's time for me to come out. No, I just, I just live in Europe. <laughs> when I wear big jeans, I look silly, right? So in that sense, from my perspective, homophobia has a regulatory function. To be Foucauldian for a second, it's about disciplining. And in that sense, I think that the American military will probably be able to integrate homosexual soldiers without challenging this culture of sort of hyper masculine and homophobia. The trick will just be for soldiers to do what women have done, which is, for homosexual soldiers rather, to do what women have done, which is to demonstrate that they're just as butch as anybody else. Um, now, I. I, 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 I I do think that there will be a significant level of, of um, controversy as, as this happens. Um, the other militaries that have integrated fully, you know, Israel, Australia, Canada, um, have a, a key variable difference from the makeup of our armed forces. Um, and certainly in the, in the pages of Stars and Stripes, this comes out, and that's the presence of Christian fundamentalism <laughs> at every level, from the Air Force Academy where... Soldiers have been beaten for refusing to, or or cadets, rather, uh, have been beaten for refusing to take place in prayer circles. All the way down to unit level, you know, Jesus, give us a circle of protection, guard us on this thing, as we go out on this mission. Um, So in that sense, I think there is an ideological homophobia that's present in the U.S. military that is not to the same degree in some of our allied militaries. Nonetheless, I I think that probably can be overcome. There was certainly massive resistance to the integration of people of color in the US military. But when the orders came down, and I'm sure there were a fair few racists who left the army or didn't join because they were scared. But in the end, it's been insignificant, and the military at this point has a self-conception as being that most integrated of American institutions. Um, I think probably in the long run, something similar will happen with gay and lesbian um, soldiers nonetheless, I think that the culture of homophobia won't leave so easily, if that makes sense. I, I don't know if that gets to your... But that that's my thinking on it.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I
3: want to go ahead? Ahead? Yeah, my name is Chris Elias. I'm a grad
4: student in the history department. Um, I want to go back to the genesis of your project. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of
3: Actually, is coding in the way that uh, presentation uh, and people identify themselves. How did the soldiers
4: with whom you met so quickly identify themselves to you as not homophobic, but uh, let you know that they thought you were a sister?
1: They just said it. <laughs> like, in the first few minutes. Okay, now so, I had so that's interesting. So, yeah.
3: why? Okay, so why does that happen? Mm-hmm. Why is that socially acceptable at that point? I read
1: that. I think that's an excellent question. Um, just to give a quick context, and then I'll answer it directly. Um, like anyone who's trying to do field work, you need a key informant to enter a community, right? Otherwise, you're just an outsider. Like, I'm just a guy at a bar near a base without someone to introduce me. Um, so I had that in all of my field work. Uh, in Germany and the U.S., I've done field work at bases. Um, and what w- would happen is that within a few minutes of meeting me, someone would ask my friend who was doing, or one of my friends who were doing the introductions, why did you bring the fag? Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of elements that go into why that happened. <clears throat> Certainly there's the, t- the, the tension between the, a military which sees itself as a, a sort of guardian of masculine values against civilians. Um, It's something that came up over and over again in my interviews. Oh, you'd never understand. You haven't been there, right? There's that discourse, which is certainly operative. I would argue that there, and it's harder to prove this, but nonetheless, I'm going to go ahead and assert it. I think there's also a class issue there, right? I self-present as fairly middle class, because I am, right? I have a job at a university. I got my PhD. And so when I'm talking to someone who's younger than me, has 50 pounds more muscle on the same frame as me, um, and is most likely from a different socioeconomic class than me, it's a way of challenging, especially when I'm introduced as a researcher, which I need to do for IRB purposes. Right? I don't get to just walk in and pretend. I have to introduce myself. I have to give them some information about what I'm doing. So I think one of the things that happens with that rush to a homophobic move is it's a way of, of taking me down a peg, right? putting me in my place. Um, like, who, who do you think you are? And I, I think that is definitely operative and that there's, there's both a class issue there. Um, and then that there's also, there's a local performativity, right? Masculinity, uh, and this is something that the gender studies literature has established, I think, pretty clearly. Masculinity is performed against others against women, against sissies, but not for the purpose of hurting them, but for the esteem of other men. So the soldier who can quickly put me in my place, make fun of me, call me all kinds of names, everybody else laughs, right? And his stock goes up. So I think, I think that there's a series of different things going on. There's class issues. There's the civilian-military divide. And then there's just the, like, everyday joking, right? I mean, people want to be funny. They want to be liked, they want to be seen as as um, tough. I don't know if that is satisfying to you, but that that's what I would. What, that's what I would say. <coughs> Sure. But they
3: come across as very uh, <coughs> polished as well. Um, so I'm a bit confused as to what you're trying to get to. Mm. Sometimes there's diplomacy. There's a role for diplomacy. There's a role for alliances, and there's a role for reconstruction. Are you then? I guess what I'm asking: um, Are you looking to reconfigure the force structure so that we have more resilience and
1: fewer combat? I'm not so ambitious. What I, the reason I, I started this project is that I wanted to point to attention, which is that we have a change in strategy from the top down that i i guess what i'm trying to say is is that that strategy is going to have to interface with this everyday culture that as because what you said is you know you walk into an ambush and there's only one solution massive re- retaliation but it's exactly that style of training and tactics which is why blackwater killed 17 people for no reason in the middle of a market square Right, they thought you know a car backfired. We still don't know exactly why it started. A car backfired. Something came too close, but that event turned the tide in the insurgency. So, my ambition—I'm I, I, not really sure what I would tell the military if I got to sit down with a group of generals. Um, I, I haven't taken that on, but what I do want to signal is that there's a tension when you are trying to change your strategy. When you're saying we need to shoot less, talk more. When you're saying we need to call in less airstrikes. And the people who are receiving those orders see that as a feminization of the military, as an overreach of civilian authority, as a misuse of their skills. That there's a tension there that's gonna have to be negotiated. And I'm not sure how it should be negotiated. I think in a way that's up to the people who are in that culture. As an outsider, I feel like I can, I can say what I see. But I think it's going to be up to probably the small unit commanders. It's going to be lieutenants who are going to have to sort this out. All right, guys, You know we don't get to open up with the 40 millimeter grenade launchers every time we take a hit in town. They're the ones who are going to have to negotiate that with soldiers who see that as an unfair restriction. I, I that's probably not satisfying to you. Um I
3: think probably that happens. I think probably it's the military tactic to not open up every time Right. Um because it just people have common sense. They know that needs to be all you're doing is really interesting, to
4: leaders.
1: Well, I think I think you're right in that pe- some people do know that. But then what I'm trying to signal is that there's a lot of other folks who are hearing that from above and saying no. They're being told, you know, troops in Haiti because it was the rapid reaction force, the airborne that were sent to Haiti. And they're complaining, you know, we should be in Afghanistan. You know, we're killers. We've done nothing but train for Afghanistan. We want to get out there. Well, that's,
3: that's what they're
1: that is what they're trained. That is what they're training. Exactly. So are
3: you saying
1: Um, I think well I mean this is going beyond my area of expertise but I think probably the the underemphasis on civilian rapid reaction forces is is a, a, a serious problem right we shouldn't have put troops straight from Iraq on the streets of New Orleans it's not what they're trained for and it's not a good use of their mission right and just like we we ought to have civilian airlift capacity we ought to have civilian rapid response search and air we should have EMS. Um, and I think that aspect of our domestic capacities has been under, underdeveloped, certainly during the Bush years, right? in which everything was folded into a securitizing homeland security and sub- sub- subordinated to a military logic. Um, I guess what I, what I want to signal is that when you have soldiers who see the mission they're being ordered to do as illegitimate, you are pro- I would argue you're producing a dangerous tension. So, their commanders are telling them, you, you know, this, this mission in Haiti is good for you. you. This is actually the kind of training to do the kind of things you're actually going to do in Afghanistan. They don't want to hear it. And not, I, you know, again, I'm using they, and that's dangerous because I do want to highlight that this, this is a very multiple set of cultures, not just, there's not a single thing that permeates. But I think there's a certain danger. For putting soldiers who see themselves as badass killing machines, and that that's all that they should do, into a new framework, a new strategy, without directly talking to them, confronting this, explaining it, getting through. Because otherwise, you, you produce the, the tension between the strategic and the tactical. And a certain, I think in, in counterinsurgency warfare, that can be really dangerous. That's all I'm really trying to highlight. Thank you for your questions. cool. Hi, I'm
4: Steve Monster. I'm the retired
1: Army
4: Colonel. Nice to meet you. I, I think you misread the 1990s. Okay. Um, the issue wasn't that the military thought the missions in Bosnia, because Haiti and Somalia were inappropriate. But the senior leaders felt a soldier to the what they consider the hardest level of war, which is knock down, drag out, conventional right. war. You know, the kind of carnivores mm-hmm. agent, as opposed to Herbert Wars, which is everyone else in the military who doesn't, right. then, um, which I'm sure you've run into those terms. For sure. Uh, then you can ramp down the soldiers' uh, capabilities according to any it's what General George Decker, the Army Chief of Staff, said in 1962 in relation any good soldier can handle girls. Right. And what we found after in the wars of 9/11 is that's not the case. That the, the kind of training and doctrine you need for the counterinsurgency wars we're engaged in is fundamentally different. Right. Than high intensity it's not,
1: not just a lower level of intensity. Yeah.
4: Right. So it, it wasn't that the there, there was the conception that conventional warfare is what we're all about. Mm-hmm. But it's not like they were saying, oh, we don't want to do these. They, they were saying, let us train to fight World War III, and then we can ramp down to do these other things. Now, that sort of shift in Army's doctrine and training <coughs> in Marines as well is ongoing right now, and Absolutely. there is a huge debate going on Absolutely, whether uh, the sorts of shifts that General Preas has advocated um, should filter down through the Army's training and doctrine system, mm-hmm. which if, if you've only been on operational basis, I think the next step is... Should be go to Tradoc, go to the National Training Center, go to these places where now they're not being trained for high-end combat, but they're being trained for uh, these sorts of hazy wars we're in. When, when most of the people uh, opposing one of these training centers are, are addressed as civilians mm-hmm. and, and in various roles, mm-hmm. so that sort of shift in trying to take the enlisted soldier, the of the junior officers, and, and put them into these situations where have to make uh, very determinate decisions on whether to fire or not. That, that is ongoing in the military. Exactly. And it, it is a, a significant debate and, and it's for a good reason. Because if we end up in a conventional war in Korea or uh, Iran or who knows where, Georgia, that would be the country, not the state. Right. Uh, so how do you get a group of, of young soldiers to close with the enemy. You know, it is by inculcating these masculine identities that we are better than them, uh, that, that we're the carnivores around here, we're the baddest people on the block, and mm-hmm. you, know, you get this unit identity where soldiers are willing to, to go forward and, and take the hill and sacrifice in the process. Mm-hmm. You don't do it really in any other manner, at least I haven't figured it out. Mm-hmm. So, I mean if you figure it out, let us know. <laughs>
1: No, I, I really appreciate your comment. Um, I, I think it, your characterization of my characterization is fair uh, from the '90s, and uh, I mean, I'd like to talk to you later. That's all right. Yeah. It's hard to say because this is one of those problems where uh, we, we don't have an a independent variable on that one. I, right? in the, I mean, I think there are certainly, in the comparative military literatures, there, there certainly are other armed forces in other countries that have a very different uh, base, basic culture and different sets of training procedures, more oriented towards the lower-intensity conflict. But it's hard to compare their military to ours.
4: Mm-hmm. ...because they've been in Iraq and and
1: they refuse to fight.
4: They, to fight. they to fight? I mean, their rules of the engagement are such that they, they cannot uh, use lethal force in some cases. Their, their countries will allow it in, in some cases. Mm-hmm. And the British, I wrote an article on the British and Bosnia, which I might want to read. And they go in with the conception that this is going to be North, northern Ireland they Find out that it's, uh, that it's actually a lot more lethal than that. Mm. And instead of uh, reorienting their, their operations, they withdraw from the city. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, There are certainly lots of studies. Um, The the Pentagon itself does lots of studies on this exact issue. Um, Although I think like the Pentagon-sponsored studies on PTSD, there's, you know, independent researchers find something else. So it could be that, that, right, the the particular context in which a survey instrument is, you know, uh, the the units I was interviewing with... um, were given their PTSD forms before they were allowed to go see their family, right? And, and they knew if they checked the box, yes, I have nightmares, they weren't going to get to see their family, so they said, no, they don't. Um, I, 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 would, I would guess that something similar is operative. Um, there's certainly lots and lots of anecdotal stories of sexual violence in the military, um, both in deployment and non-deployment. Um, at the military academies themselves, there's ongoing... Struggle. You know, the Air Force Academy has had to do a major investigation recently um, given uh, reports of widespread sexual assault and harassment. Um, and in terms of your question about um, whether, whether that is somehow tied to the masculine ethos, I, I think that there is often a performative dimension to sexual assault. Um, again, that, that would be drawing not so much on the military sociology literature as the wider literature on sexual violence in America. Um, and I certainly anecdotally have heard a number of stories from women of being sexually assaulted. Um, we also know that that, was, that happened uh, extensively with contractors. Right? There's the, the two women who um, were suing in, in federal court because the contracts they had with KBR prevented them from seeking legal redress either in Iraq or U.S., And the court ended up having to say, "Sorry, your contract." But they, you know, one woman had been raped, and then when she tried to complain, locked in a cooler. Um, And so, I mean, again, it's hard to know statistically um, exactly how prevalent it is. Certainly, we hear a lot about it. Women, when they get out of the service, talk a lot about it. Um, But I would say that there's um, there's a performative dimension to that. In the in in claiming. That one has been a victim of a sexual assault. You're seeding that performative masculinity, even as a woman, right? The, to maintain that masculinized identity vis-a-vis your your coworkers or the people in your unit, but to 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 al- to allow everyone to know that that has happened um, probably has both career implica- possible career implications, but more important, it has local implications for your relationships with people around you. Um, So... Um, Well, to answer the first question first, um, yeah, it was often social spaces that were easiest to approach people um, via a key informant. But I used snowballing beyond that, so I did both group interviews, meaning like listening to people, talking to them, asking them questions, um, trying as much as possible not to (laughs) radically transform the environment, although we all know that's impossible, doing field work, right? The researcher always affects uh, the scene. But from those contacts, I would then pursue individual interviews uh, when possible in other times and places. Um, So yes, absolutely, the the presence being in a social space affected things. Um, In groups, I was much more likely to be made fun of and called names. One-on-one, people told me about nightmares and cried and talked about drug addictions. Especially, I I did spend some time with wounded soldiers and in front of each other, it was a lot of, you know, keeping up appearances. But one-on-one, it was pretty clear these guys were falling apart. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's an incredible transformation of self-image that happens when you see yourself as a young, you know, some of these guys are like 19. Um, you know, and they were badass. You know, they could do so many push-ups. They could, they could hit things at 100 meters with a little teeny bullet. They were badass. And then they got their leg blown off, or they took internal organ damage, and now their mom has to take care of them, and the complete collapse of that, you know, hypermasculine identity down to being a patient, a dependent, um, and also the, the the rootedness of that identity in the body, right? As the body deteriorates, um, especially in a culture where where you know visible physical performance is at such a premium, um, that was the kind of thing that only happened in one-on-one interviews. No one talked about that stuff in groups. Um, And apparently, although I don't know, I wasn't a part of their counseling groups, but there's something called the Wounded Warriors Reserve. um, And they have counseling groups for wounded soldiers. Apparently, even in their counseling groups, they had a hard time talking about it, although I didn't directly participate because that's confidential. Um, So absolutely, the presence and setting of any field work absolutely modifies what's going on. There's no question about that. Um, Nonetheless, I, I think there is something valuable about watching sort of social performativity in in, um, in different spaces, um, and in terms of the racial makeup of the soldiers I was working with, it was like most units incredibly diverse. Um, so the dominant—I mean, I don't have percentages on me, but you know—it was the dominant populations were rural whites and people of color from big cities. And that there, there's certainly a, cultural, a set of cultural divides there. Um, nonetheless, you know they get on pretty good, especially if they've been through a tour or two together. Um, and that I think uh, that absolutely affected different environments as well in terms of my my sample, um, or, or not not environments, but it, it affected what I heard. In that, you know, uh, approaching a group of all black soldiers with a white key informant doesn't get me the same access as that key informant gets me in a mixed group. If that makes sense. Uh-huh.
3: as much as it's just an insider-outsider mm-hmm. sort of we're smarter than them. Uh, we know something they don't know, uh, something like that. It's, it seems to like you're sometimes passing in an awful lot in terms of masculinity. Sometimes it's sort of a direct sense of strength, uh, sort of stereotype of a macho guy beating up somebody.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Other times, it's the professional soldier who has to be a responsible parent or responsible father mm-hmm. or, or responsible whatever, spouse, a professional leader and that's more paternal. Mm-hmm. So is that masculine too? So it seems like this independent girl just becomes really elastic mm-hmm. to include class differences, social economic differences, just a minute ago, race differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm wondering, what is gender and
1: what's not? Mm. And I, I think that's it's an excellent question. And in the literature on gender that I'm coming from, um, one of the key assumptions is that gender is omnipresent. That the, That there isn't a situation that isn't gendered. And that gender, in that sense, maps onto other constellations. So masculinity in in different contexts has different articulations. And in that sense, I think you're right to signal that it's a moving target. And that's precisely my point when I said multiple masculinities, right? That there are different ways of presenting oneself as masculine. The paternal father can assert his masculinity against the boy's. But the same boys can call that that paternalistic guy just an egghead and a queer. So in that sense, masculinity is not so much a, a single set of attributes as a possible move. It's, it's an interactive resource that one can use to put others down or to assert a particular sense of identity. And it absolutely maps uh, unequally and very differentially with things like race, class, geography. Um, Across the world, there are all kinds of different conceptions of what it means to be a real man. Um, across time, there have been very different conceptions of what it means to be a real man. Um, and so I, I think it's a fair point to say, you know, that I'm being Lucy Goosey with the concept, because what I'm trying to trying to highlight against the IR feminist literature that has tended to posit masculinity as a single sort of Rambo hyper masculine killing machine. I'm trying to say, no, 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 there's other conceptualizations of masculinity that are in use right now, and that you can see them in use. Um, And, yeah, just to go back and say that one point one more time, that masculinity is a resource. It's a a way of asserting oneself in a particular context, and therefore can be used differently by different actors in different social spaces. But it, nonetheless, it retains, uh, it, it does retain a certain meaning across, because of the social power of the masculine-feminine divide, or the, the tough-guy-sissy divide. Um, is your
3: then, that this is uh, fundamentally different in the military part of our society than in the civilian part, or just sort of quantitatively different? In other words, how much of what you've described, I could imagine, I'm sort of reflecting the social Absolutely. Everyone went to college, uh, assisted, uh, and so on and so on. I and mean, We all understand these social dynamics uh, in the United States more broadly. Uh, so is, is it just hyper-evident um, uh, in the military? Are you saying the military is fundamentally different or just, uh, just a more exaggerated? view? Because I hear the President of the United States uh, talking about, you know, what it means to be a man in the African-American community, evidently trying to push mm-hmm. the
1: Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. It it absolutely is. uh, The types of dynamics that I'm seeing in the military are absolutely present elsewhere. It's just that they haven't been studied to my satisfaction. I thought I saw a window. I thought I saw a place where I have something interesting to say. Um, Honestly, a lot of the inspiration for this project comes from studies of high schools. The social social norms of high schools are... very similar to this. The football team versus the AV club versus the Victorian, The way that cheerleaders are used to position vis-a-vis. other. I mean, absolutely, this is, this is going on throughout American society. And I think what I'm trying to highlight is why that might be interesting to military leaders. Why, why it is that they might need to think a little bit more or a little bit differently about the role of, of sort of gendered norms, um, And that's all. No, absolutely, this stuff is ongoing everywhere, all the time. (laughs) uh,
3: Your point about the contradiction in logic is, I think, actually very good. Uh, The point you were just taking a moment ago. Uh, But I'd like to tie into something to Rick has. I'm interested in your metrics of masculinity also. That's one question I had in my mind. I I come at this partially with my father, Mm -hmm. uh, a paragon of masculinity, uh, a boxer, an athlete, Uh a school. Right. saying some, there are two kinds of men in the world, two ways to measure yourself as a man. One is who you can knock down. The other is who you can lift up. Mm. So you get to choose mm. what you're going to be. And so it see, seems to me that you know, I, I grew up with sort of multiple masculinities in my head and I think a lot of men do. And I just want to throw out that little piece of observation for you. But then I want to relate it to, to some degree to the different services about soldiers No, airmen. I'm it's sure the they wouldn't. Masculinities the the right. And the the of sure. right. You didn't say Marines as opposed to soldiers are to incorporate Marines immediately within, mm. In the uh, the gay Marines, yeah.
2: uh, serve and so
1: on yeah I think it's an excellent point point. and the slippage comes because my field work was all with the US Army whereas some of the other stuff I've been looking at is across services so that's where there's a certain imprecision in my my articulations um, and, I mean, if you ever want to start a fight, right, at a veterans' meeting, you could do the play the game that, that Kimball talks about with the six-year-old. You just ask, well, which service is the biggest sissies, right? And you'd get an interesting bunch of assertions. Um, and I would say absolutely the, in, the institutional cultures of the Navy and Air Force do. There are marked differences between those and, and the, the land warfare groups, Um nonetheless and I guess I, I want to be pretty careful about this but nonetheless I think that there is um, there are images of what it means to be at war and to be a man at war that cross these and they cross I would argue because of popular cultural imaginaries the kinds of stuff we consume as boys the games we play the I mean, I, I'm a bit old, but the, the role of video games in this is, I think, going to prove fascinating in the next 10 to 20 years. Even the fact that the, the, um, the crew-served gun, the crew gun, the robot gun, has a PlayStation 3 controller, because they found that soldiers had a, they, you know, the guys who designed it were older, and they had Atari paddles, and they switched it to a PS3 controller, because, you know, anyone under 25 can do that. Um so I think in, in video games, in movies, in advertisements, in the sort of stories we tell about what it means to go to war, there are certain images that circulate. Um, and I, I think those...
3: There's image of a few good men that's not going to be behind a PlayStation 3. apparatus I don't
1: see that changing.
3: Yeah, no. They are going to be holdouts. I guess they're going to be the self-pronounced cavemen.
1: Yeah, Right. But they also, interestingly, are are the ones who were more prepared for counterinsurgency and low tech warfare than the army. Um, Nonetheless, uh, right. Um, great questions. Yes, there's certainly an age divide, although whether that's because of the generational imprint, right—that the idea that, that you know, wh- where and what is going on in your life during adolescence has long-term consequences. Um, I'm not sure whether it's that or whether it's also just the local positioning within a particular setting. So you have older, older, you know, NCOs talking about, oh, the young guys. The young guys, they just want to get to Afghanistan. The young guys, they just want to get to fighting. And in a way, that's also, that's a move, right? It's a way of shutting them up and asserting, well, no, I'm the adult here. I know what's really going on, and I know that what we're doing in Haiti is important, or in Iraq is important. Um, so there's absolutely age differences. And the the... 18 to 22-year-olds were the ones who tended to be most vociferous in denouncing me, denouncing civilians, denouncing politicians, denouncing really anything that wasn't special forces and being badass. Um, whereas older soldiers, I think there was a, a more of a complex mix. You know, once, once someone has had a child, um, and a lot of soldiers have children right. very, very young, of course, right? We know this from the demographics of the military. Nonetheless, I think, I think there, is, there are shifts in self-conception that come. Right, Straight out of basic training, you have one particular self-image. Once you've been in a while, you have a couple of kids you want to get back to, or you move up in the ranks so you have soldiers under you who you want to protect. I think it's easier for soldiers to shift out of the sort of let's-go-get-it hyper-masculine you know, whatever and shift to a more paternal, a more sort of emphasis on rationality, on um, adulthood, on efficiency. And um, I think that that comes with age, it comes with parenthood, and it comes with um, responsibility for other soldiers. Um, And in terms of the explicit problematization, the only folks who ever actually directly talked about their masculinity were wounded. And I heard it from everyone, women and men. That, you know, like, as one woman said... uh, You know, I used to pee in a bottle on helicopters. I could do anything. Now I can't even walk. What kind of soldier am I? You know, and guys, you know, some of whom take, you know, uh, among these wounded soldiers, um, talked explicitly about, like, what kind of man am I? How can my kids look up to me? Um, I'm going to spend the rest of my life getting nursed, one guy said. So, um, it, it was in that context that people talked about it explicitly. Whereas I, I didn't have any non wounded soldiers explicitly talk about their manhood. Um, nonetheless, there was a lot of homophobia and a lot of jockeying for position. Um, I hope that helps. This has been a great talk. And thank Jesse. Of course,
0: you've been involved in killing and moth I think it's an interview at two o'clock. of what?
2: Thank you.